I was at a, a hackathon uh, my second year of undergrad, I think. And for those not familiar with hackathons, it's a room where 900 people get in a room and spend 48 hours straight with Red Bull and Soylent and whatever else you have. And uh, there was a MongoDB booth and we got $50 of free credit for students to use. I've been around it for a while and then I didn't experience it professionally until I came over to Proofpoint. The main focus that I have my eyes on is we use it a lot for our forensics data. With Proofpoint, we obviously analyze a lot of malware and, and malicious things. Um, and we store a lot of those artifacts in Mongo so we can query them efficiently and, and really you know, find things that we need to find about that malware. Hey everyone, my name is Jacob Latonis. I'm a senior software engineer on the threat research team at Proofpoint, and welcome to the MongoDB podcast. Welcome back to the show. My name is Michael Lin, and this is the MongoDB podcast. Today, we're diving into the fascinating world of cybersecurity with a special guest from our MongoDB community creator series, Jacob Latonis. He's a senior threat research engineer at Proofpoint, and today we discuss his journey and his background in computer science to becoming an influential member of the MongoDB community as well as the threat research community at large. We explore how MongoDB plays an integral role at Proofpoint, especially in managing large-scale forensics data, and we delve into Jacob's passion for open source technologies and artificial intelligence in security. This episode is packed with valuable knowledge for anyone curious about the intersection of database technology and cybersecurity. Stay tuned. Well, Jacob, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, Michael. How are you? I'm excited to I'm be doing, here. Doing fantastic. Thanks so much for agreeing to do the show. So we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Among the topics we're going to touch on, we're going to talk a little bit about your background, about um, security in general, about the MongoDB community. Uh, but before we dive in, let folks know who you are and what you do. Sure. So as I as I said in the intro, my name is Jacob Latonis. Uh, I'm a senior software engineer on the threat research team at Proofpoint. My academic background is in theoretical computer science. I did my undergrad at the University of Wisconsin up in Madison, and then I did my master's in computer science at Johns Hopkins. Fantastic. That's great, great experience and, and great education. And today you're working at Proofpoint. And what do you do in the threat research team? Sure. So at the threat research team, I, I handle quite a lot of different things. I don't really have a tie to any specific function. I mainly, my main goal is to support the threat research team through internal tooling, software engineering, efficiencies and process, things like that. Mm, yeah. And how did you get interested in and involved in MongoDB? Where do these worlds overlap? Sure. So in all honesty, MongoDB, I was at a, a hackathon uh, my second year of undergrad, I think. And for those not familiar with hackathons, it's a room where 900 people get in a room and spend 48 hours straight with Red Bull and Soylent and whatever else you have. And um, there was a MongoDB booth and we got $50 of free credit for students to use. And I think it was like Mongo. I've been around it for a while and then I didn't experience it professionally until I came over to Proofpoint. So personal projects for quite some time and then professionally, just my time at Proofpoint, which is coming up on a year. Oh, great. And can you talk a little bit, can you talk a little bit about how MongoDB is used at Proofpoint? Sure. Uh, without getting into to too fine, finely tuned specifics, uh, we use it in more than a, more than a couple of ways. Uh, the main focus that I have my eyes on is we use it a lot for our forensics data. So with Proofpoint, we obviously analyze a lot of malware and, and malicious things. Um, and we store a lot of those artifacts in Mongo so we can query them efficiently and, and really you know find things that we need to find about that malware. And I guess from a database perspective, it makes sense. There's a lot of 
different attributes, the, the flexible schema is probably something that's pretty valuable in that space. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of over, there's, there's a lot of things where it may have one or two fields or, you know, if, if things go off the deep end, with a lot more processing, it's, it's a lot more, a lot more fields, uh, a lot more variability. It's, it gets pretty, pretty nested at times too, which makes things interesting. So I want to talk about your background and how you made the jump from theoretical computer science to security. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so Going going into university, um, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, I took a, a whole slew of classes ranging from political science to um, politics to computer science. Uh, and the one class that really stuck with me first semester of freshman year was computer science uh, 200. Wisconsin doesn't use the 101 system for computer science for whatever reason. Uh, and then from there, uh, computer science is, is kind of what stuck with me. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and then when it came time to start applying for internships between my uh, first and second year, I applied to quite a few. I got a couple offers, and one of them was in security at TransUnion, which is a, one of the big three credit bureaus. And mm -hmm. it was in Chicago, and I'd never lived in Chicago before. So I was like, well, I'm going to gonna choose that one. So I kind of just fell into it. It wasn't really like a planned thing. It was just this seems cool at the, at the current moment in time. Yeah. But it's, it's clearly something you've got a passion for. You've dove pretty deeply into it. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the passion since then has has grew tremendously. I had a lot of really good mentors um, going from university into into the field, um, and mm -hmm. I was able to have my my internship extended at TransUnion to be able to work like during school, and it, it really helped build that that base of knowledge. Because when I got into the later uh, like graduate slash undergraduate advanced level courses in that covered like computer security and architecture, um, I already had a lot of that base level knowledge, so it was really exciting. Tell me about the mentors. Were these officially like program assigned mentors or, or did you seek others out? Sure. So I, I think it's it's really both. I had a, a couple of folks that I just met through like LinkedIn that, you know, I could I could DM with questions because they're they're in the space. They know they know how the career field works and all of that, um, which is really great. I actually had one one course in undergrad that was like a one credit class. And they said, find someone who works in the space you want to work in. Uh, message them on LinkedIn, you know, obviously explain what you're doing and then, you know, ask if they can be your mentor for the next semester or whatever on, on random questions like applying for jobs, how that stuff works. Super great. Highly recommend that. It feels really yeah. weird at first just reaching out to a random person, but it was super great. Um, oh, that's, what, that's great advice though. Absolutely. I can't think of any, any better way. So did you get somebody right away that, that responded favorably? <laughs> I did. We, um, we had a system where they'd look for, uh, alumni from UW and then obviously they probably are a little more likely to answer you you know given the the context of like I'm also going to UW here's here's why I'm messaging you I promise I'm not that random um, <laughs> and yeah I was the first guy I messaged actually reached back out he did site reliability engineering so not exactly uh security but at the, that point in time I wasn't sure if it was security or software engineering I was going to focus in uh, and it, it worked out really well yeah um, as for yeah. the professional side of the mentoring I had a lead like forensics guy that was assigned to me as a mentor when I first started my internship at TransUnion. Uh, and then he eventually became my like direct uh, manager. So it, it worked out really well. He, you know, starting out as a, as an intern, you don't really know anything about security. It's um, I started out in the security operations center. So all the monitoring and logs and looking at all that fun stuff, both process uh, system wise and, and network wise. And mm. it was, it was really interesting. There's, there's a lot of things that, go on behind the scenes and security at, at large organizations that you don't really think about until you're made aware of it. And uh, it, was, it was pretty enlightening. 
Yeah. Always good to have somebody kind of guiding you, leading the way, and they're available to answer questions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. When it comes to MongoDB, you're you're in the community. You're a, what we've we've termed a MongoDB community creator. Talk about the program and how you got involved. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the the program itself, it's really a way for for MongoDB to support people in in the community that you know like posting about the work they do, like enlightening others and, and teaching others about the the technologies and the. The techniques that they use, which I think is is super cool. I think that MongoDB does a really good job of reaching out to the community, both like as a company, but also by supporting others, kind of like the community program or the the user groups. Um, and the the way I found it was I was at uh, MongoDB.local here in Chicago, uh, which I think was in August or September, I can't remember. But I was I was at that, and I was just talking to a couple of the booths, and then I met Veronica, who I think is one of the heads of the community leader program, mm-hmm. and uh, she. I, we started talking about how Proofpoint uses it and then the the use cases and, and things like that. And she was like, would you like to talk about the community program? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I, I like talking, as you could probably already tell in this podcast. I, I talk a lot. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to, I'd love to start doing that. Um, and then we talked back and forth and it, it kind of it came into fruition. Yeah, that's great. So it seems like it's pretty easy to get uh, to get involved. What about the the benefits? Like what benefits do you experience as as part of being a, a creator. Sure. So I think the first benefit that is really the the main one is with MongoDB and the the size of the community they have, they they amplify whatever you are writing about or talking about or, you know, um, coding even. They uh, they'll help you like branch out from where you are to, to the other parts of the community and give you a little bit more like eyes on or, you know, however, ears on if it's a podcast or, or what have you, um, that I think is super great. Um, the other really nice benefit of the community program is you get to connect with a lot of like-minded folks. Um, so uh, if you have, you know, say you're working on a on a post or a, a program about, you know, PHP and MongoDB, um, you can get into the Discord and you can, you can reach out and be like, hey, I'm running into this problem or I have two paths. I'm not sure which way I want to go. And odds are uh, someone in the community has already experienced that problem or dealt with that decision and they'll give you their their advice or or what they did which i think is really great because sometimes i feel like when you get really down into the nitty-gritty the the details are they don't feel the same but like the higher level choices are, are pretty similar and people can give you some advice which i think is really great the community and inter- interactions are among the best i've experienced and it's great to know that you've got folks like veronica and harshad and the whole community team everybody's really focused on on nurturing and making sure that, that folks get what they need when it comes to Q&A and access to resources and, and even access to, uh, you know, to write for the MongoDB property and uh, appear on the podcast. So, yeah, there's a whole host of, of benefits. So if you're listening to this and you're curious, you want to learn more, there's links in the show notes. You can get more information there. It's mdb.link slash community dash creators. And you can find that link in the show notes. Now, you've written about MongoDB and specifically around change streams. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Sure. So with MongoDB, um, if you're running in uh, any type of cluster, as long as there's not a single node, MongoDB change streams are enabled by default. There's no config that you need to do. Um, And what change streams allow you to do is monitor certain operations on either a database or a collection or specific items. Um, And then you get alerts from the cluster on you know, what was changed, when it was changed, the content that was changed, et cetera. 
And with those, you can actually write programs that operate off of those change streams because you can subscribe to them. I think it's available in, in every single MongoDB driver. I, I haven't confirmed that. I haven't looked at the source code of all of them, mm, but yeah. I'm fairly certain. Um, and with those, you can write programs that operate off of those changes. So if you're expecting you know, new additions or insertions, then you can operate off of those and run various different branches of, of different things from those change streams instead of having to query the, the database or the collection each time to find the new ones. Yeah, so instead of writing a batch job to sit through your database and look for changes, you can be notified. And, uh, and Atlas automates this through what we call Atlas triggers. So what types of things are you doing with change streams? Sure. So with, with change streams, one of, the, one of the main benefits that I've ran into is when you're logging things, like in our instance, it's logging system logs. So whether that's process mm -hmm. creation, um, network logs, you know, anything that really logs on your endpoint that we're, you know, recording, um, we're going to get a log for that. So if we're writing something about detections for uh, an endpoint, so if someone, if a process creates another process, we log that, and then the chain stream would notify whatever program is listening that, hey, there's a new uh, insertion to this collection. This is the log, and then from there, we can run a detection pipeline on that log, and if anything looks nefarious or malicious or whatever adjective you'd like to use to describe it as bad, mm -hmm. um, you can alert on it if it if it is indeed bad and then trigger things from there. Yeah. Are you using Atlas or are you using on-prem? Uh, we're using on-prem just because of the the locality and the the sensitivity of the things that we have. It's it's easier for us to use on-prem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, great, great use there of MongoDB technology. There are other technologies that you're involved in. Uh, what other types of things do you get your hands in? Sure. So I'm a I'm a big connoisseur of open source technologies. Um, if you've used things like Yara, um, Yara being the the utility for pattern matching in the security world, uh, I've contributed to that, um, and I've also contributed to Yara X. Um, Yara X is just uh, the version of Yara that's written in Rust. It's experimental currently, uh, but it's it's the the way of the future for Yara. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Yara. It's written by the folks over at VirusTotal slash Google slash Alphabet slash whatever parent company. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's pretty great. It's used the, in lots of different endpoint solutions. Um, you can write rules for it, and then it will scan either the the files on the computer themselves, or it'll also scan in memory, and you can write rules for that. Uh, oh. The current work that, that I do on Yara slash Yara X, um, I'm just going to say Yara X from here on out, because that's, that's where the development lies. Uh, is with the Mac O module. So if you're not familiar with Mac OS and those internals, um, all of the new Mac binaries slash executables are Mac O format. Um, and Mac O has kind of taken a backseat to all the other formats in the R world, just because, as I'm sure everyone's heard before, um, Mac security is kind of lagging behind Windows security. At least it used to be in the past. It's catching up now. But everyone used to say, oh, Macs don't get viruses. You know, that's not true. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it's 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 changing quite a lot now, but yeah. So it's it's good to know that. So this is supported by the folks at uh, Proofpoint. They they give you some time to work on that, or is that done in your free time? A little bit of both. If there's use cases that like fill a niche that we need at Proofpoint, then some of the 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 job time is is allocated towards that. Um, as well as if there are use cases that I would just like to work on, um, I also just do it in my free time. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the latest topic that everybody's talking about, 
artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning. Are you doing anything in that space? Yeah, absolutely. Proofpoint has more than a couple of ways that it's involved in the space. Um, we have internally developed tools that, you know, look at emails and, and message bodies. If you give us permission to look at message bodies um, that have some sort of some sort of machine learning slash artificial intelligence that tries to detect things that are detected by static or dynamic signatures. And when I say static or dynamic, what I mean is if you don't execute the file and you look at attributes and try to detect on things, that's static. Um, dynamic is we're going to execute this in a sandbox, a sandbox being a locally protected environment where nothing can leak out. Um, and then we look at the artifacts dropped, what happens, and that's those are dynamic. And then the machine learning detections that we have, you know, it's it's based on quite a few different things. You know, some of it uh, can get pretty complicated. But what it does is it, it looks at various attributes that we may not normally write detections on, and if it can cluster on those things and, and fire detections that are, you know, net positive for the, the end users or, or as a whole, um, then we also have ways of blocking or quarantine messages that way as well. Mm, yeah. So what do you think's next in this space? Um, I I think there's a there's a lot of variability right now. I think the the hype train for AI and ML is is full steam ahead, right? Like everyone's very excited about it. Um, I think LLMs, large language models, and you know, like conversational AI is is really big right now. Um, everyone's rolling out some form of thing that allows their their end users to to communicate with it. Um, and then they get like a normal, like human written response back, human looking written, not human written. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think there's a lot of room for that, for people to really understand, like, you, you know, you can go, you can go to the AI and you can be like, Hey, why did this fire? And they can be like, Oh, this detection fired because X, Y, and Z. And that's really nice for an end user to be able to just question those things instead of having to, you know, call an API, uh, look through the JSON and be like, Oh, these three things fired. What do they mean? Things like that. Yeah. So what's your biggest concern as it relates to artificial intelligence in the, in the security space? Sure. So I think there's there's two ways to look at this. There's one that like the the idea of like tainted models or or models that are trained either improperly on like on accident or a threat actor like you know adding things to the data set that you know make them behave not normally on purpose. Um that's a fairly large space I think both in academia and in you know like uh enterprise level like threat models which I think is very interesting, um, but I won't pretend to now have like really in-depth knowledge about that because I, I just don't, uh, but I think it's interesting. Um, the other the other space that I think it's it's really interesting um, is using LLMs and like things like Copilot um, or whatever other tool you use to like help develop. Uh, it's really great for a lot of the initial things like boilerplate code and, and developing quickly and iterating quickly. Um, but one thing that it can do if you're not familiar with the code that is being inserted, or maybe it does something fancy that you're not familiar with, uh, it can introduce pretty gnarly bugs into complex code bases. Um, and that's the thing about some of these LLMs. They're not familiar with the intricacies of your code base. So it may look like a solution for this piece, but it you know may down the road, it doesn't have the context of this is used somewhere else. Um, hmm. And the, the security aspects of that, I think are very interesting. Uh, and it, it leaves a lot into the security space to to kind of evaluate how that threat model looks and, and what can go on from there. Yeah. I can imagine that uh, a lot of the boilerplate code that's suggested by an LLM, I mean, it may just have exploitable code, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If if you, as anyone's looked at, you know, the the base stuff on Stack Overflow. And... that I'm sure there's there's a lot of potential opportunities for security 
uh, problems as LLMs continue to suggest code that may be exploitable. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think as as anyone who's opened a Stack Overflow page or, or anything like that, there's there's examples, uh, and they're not always production ready examples. So you may have one that's like, hey, what, how do I write this command to look up like the the DNS servers of an IP address, right? And then or DNS servers of a domain, and then it will give you a give you an idea, and it's like, hey, just write this Python script that takes in this IP address and then run NS lookup, um, or domain name and then run NS lookup. And then from there, um, you're like, oh, this looks great. And then it decides to get integrated into a product and you don't sanitize the input. You can just pass another command in instead of the domain. And then you have command injection. Um, and if you're not familiar with those aspects and BLM decides to recommend you that piece of code that it was trained on, that's already a, a security problem right right there. Hopefully you have some sort of like static uh, CICD analysis that tells you they'll do that. But a lot of smaller orgs don't have those up and up and going right off the, the start. So it's it's definitely a an area for, for improvement, I think. Do you have advice for folks that are leveraging large language models for code generation or, or code assistance? Uh, I think my biggest thing, um, I heard this, I think in just like a random like YouTube video that I was watching. Um, when you're learning, turn it off. Don't leverage auto-completion when you're learning a new tech stack or you're learning a new language or you're you're starting something like that because if you aren't familiar with the intricacies of that language or the you know vulnerabilities or or et cetera that you're you may be implementing, um, not having that auto completion will allow you to dive into that a little bit better and you may end up researching further into why it's doing this, why should I do this, why should I not? And I, I think that's a good starting point. Um, and I think one thing that LLMs could be leveraged for in a in a good way is, you know, if you're using copilot or whatever and your linter or whatever when you're developing says hey this is it this is opens you up to command injection like don't be afraid to open up the llm and be like what is command injection why should i be worried about it because that that'll give you a great answer um and then you can you know base how you write your code from there from that context gained with that llm the tool is only as good as the prompts you give it so yeah i, I would highly suggest well being aware of security vulnerabilities in, in code it's absolutely necessary what type of tools does Proofpoint offer for for identifying code injection and, and vulnerabilities in code? So we don't offer CI/CD like analysis tools like that. Um, but if you we happen to see something in a, a malicious file that is executing or it's it's using like a specific uh, CVE um, like a vulnerability or an exploit, then we'll detect on that um, if we have detections for it. Um, and then you'll be able to see that in your, um, we, we call them campaigns, but when you're in the, the proof point, like threat dashboard, you'll be able to see what they, what they do and how they do it. And then from there, you can kind of gain the context that you need to see how this leveraged specific pieces of technology to, to be malicious and things like that. It's a fascinating space. Well, Jacob, it's been a great discussion. Is there anything else you want to make sure that the listeners know? One thing I would like to, to say is if you're in the Chicago area, uh, we do have a MongoDB user group. Uh, I help co-lead that with Cassiano. If you're if you're in the Chicago area, we I think right now they're once a quarter. But with MongoDB user groups, you can be a complete new person to MongoDB. You can come and learn, ask questions, or you can be a person who is very advanced with MongoDB and and you may be able to talk about the use cases that you have for your company. You may be able to talk about the you know the the intricacies, the details, the the nitty gritty of what you get into, which is really interesting. 
Uh, we just had one in December for uh, Coyote Logistics, which they talked about their aggregation pipelines and the complexities that they run into. And it's super interesting because you get new eyes on that like people will be able to ask, why do you do this? What makes it efficient? What makes it slow, et cetera. And then you also have people that have been working with Mongo for you know eight years now. And they're like, oh, you should maybe change this query and you, it's more performant this way. And you get really interesting questions. Um, and above all else, it's a community space that MongoDB loves to grow and foster. And you can meet new people, meet new connections. Um, yeah, it's just a, it's a fun time overall. Usually there's snacks and drinks provided and you just get to hang out with like-minded people. That's how I got my start with MongoDB through MongoDB user groups. If you're listening to this, make sure you check the show notes. We're going to have links to the Chicago area MongoDB user group. Jacob, thanks so much for taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I've, I've had a great time. I hope I haven't uh, talked too much, and I, I really enjoyed it. Not at all. All right. Thanks so much to Jacob for joining us today. If you want to learn more about the MongoDB Community Creator Series, subscribe to this podcast. If you want to check out the program, visit the MongoDB community. There are links in the show notes. If you want to learn more about Proofpoint, head on over to proofpoint.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.